Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of a Rick Brandt science adventure story, The Wailing Octopus, by John Blaine. Volume 4, Chapter 8 The Fancy Frogmen The question is, Rick stated, when was the oil put in? While we were at Charlotte Amali, or while we were out hunting the wreck just now? Charlotte Amali, of course, Tony said. Why do you think it might have been done just a little while ago? Rick shrugged. He had no answer to that. The question had popped into his mind unbidden. We didn't take the compressor apart, Scotty reminded him. That was true, but Rick had started, and Charlotte Amali, to be sure it was functioning. There was no oil in it then. He said as much. You started to take the compressor apart at the same time you checked the tanks, Zircon reminded him. I believe the oil was put in at the same time the valves were loosened. That seemed reasonable. Rick put aside his hunch. Well, we found it in time anyway. Now Scotty and I will have to tear the compressor apart and clean it before we can recharge the tanks. After lunch, Tony said. Don't you remember? A diver is supposed to rest after each dive. Relax, and I'll have some sandwiches ready in a few minutes. All hands were hungry. Scotty stowed away four sandwiches, and Rick did nearly as well. Then they started work on the compressor. It wasn't a hard job, but it was tedious, and nearly two hours elapsed before they had finished. Each part had to be washed in soap and water, and then carefully dried. Finally, the compressor was ready. They carried it to the boat and started the gas engine and connected the tanks. But before the air started to flow, Rick carefully inspected the filter system to be sure it hadn't been tampered with as well. You know, he observed, these enemies that Steve is hunting know a lot about sport diving. Scotty considered. They knew that the tanks could be dangerous, and they knew that oil in the compressor is dangerous. Yeah, you're right, Rick. They know plenty about it. But it doesn't do us much good to know that they know, Rick concluded. Well, what now? It'll be a few hours before all the tanks are charged. Where are Zircon and Tony? Napping. We should probably join them. Not me. There's nothing to do after sundown but sleep. I'd like to take a walk and look the island over. Rick sighed. Always an eager beaver. I'll go with you if you don't walk fast. They turned north and walked up the beach. Somewhere off this stretch of beach was the maiden hand. But where? They strolled along leisurely, stopping now and then to examine some bit of beach flotsam. There were shells, but most of them were small and water-worn. We'll have to collect a few shells off of the reef, Rick said. Barbie will be disappointed if we don't. Well, that's easy enough to do. I saw a half dozen different varieties this morning. They passed a beach house, obviously empty. Rick gestured toward it. Funny how few people there are here. If I owned a place on this island, I'd be here all the time. Unless you had to make a living, Scotty added practically. This isn't the season for vacations. I expect vacation time finds plenty of activity here. There's one cabin occupied to the south of us. I saw people there this morning. They're probably the same ones who waved at us from a boat 
when we flew over the other day. The boat isn't there now, Rick observed. At least I haven't seen it. Well, they may have gone to St. Thomas for supplies, or they may have gone home. Scotty pointed to what seemed to be the largest house on the island, up near the northern tip. That's quite a place. Let's go have a look at that. There was a long pier in front of the house, and unlike the others on the island, this house had a second story. There was no sign of life. They walked around it and found a barbecue pit. Scotty examined it. Well, this has been used recently, probably the past few days. Rick bent and peered at a scrap of meat. You're right. They had steak. This piece hasn't even dried out yet. Maybe they're still here. Scotty walked to the back of the house. They might be out fishing or something. He looked in a window and called urgently. Rick, look. Rick hurried to his side and peered in. The room was evidently used for storing diving equipment. Hung along the wall were three full diving suits of expensive make. Next to them, neatly racked, was an assortment of spear guns, all of the spring type and all of Italian make. On another wall were three scuba regulators. Not aqualung types such as the boys used, but the variety that carries a full face mask through which the diver breathes. In a rack on the floor were nine spare tanks and a compressor much larger and more expensive than theirs. Swim fins, also of Italian make, were lying on a table. They were the shoe type, put on like a pair of slippers. Rick identified an underwater camera, complete with steering fins and outside controls, and a number of face masks with built-in snorkels. Boxes stacked on the floor carried labels that identified them as mid-season suits of French make. We found some real fancy frogmen, Scotty observed. This place looks like a high-priced showroom for diving gear. You're right. Plenty. Pretty plush, Rick agreed. They wandered back down to the beach and found this area of the island was apparently more open to the sea. There were bits of flotsam, including coconuts that had washed in. The seashells were larger, and they found a few worth picking up. Scotty beckoned and pointed to a piece of wood nearly buried in the sand. What do you make of this? Rick examined it. It was curved, and a shred of green metal still clung to the rusty remains of an ancient hand-fashioned nail. He looked up with sudden excitement. It's a section of ship rib, and a pretty old one, too. His finger indicated the shred of metal. Copper, or it used to be, completely oxidized. Been in the water a long time, maybe even centuries. The boys stared out at the reef, both half afraid to put their thoughts into words. Finally, Scotty asked, You remember reading about any earthquakes or big tidal waves down here recently? Rick tried to recall. No. Why? Well, the Madden Hand has been under the water here for a couple of centuries. And pretty deep water, too. It would take a major disturbance to reach down 120 feet to break off a chunk of it. Rick grinned. You're right, but we haven't anything to lose by taking a look, have we? They trotted down the beach toward their own house at a half run. Rick looked at his watch. At least one pair of tanks should be full by now. And there's plenty of time for a dive. 
Come on. They paused at the pier, put the pressure gauge on the first two tanks in the series, and found them charged, as Rick had predicted. Then they ran for the house. Tony and Zircon were gone. There was a note on the living room table. We're exploring the southern end. Be back in an hour or two. Shall we wait? Scotty asked. No need. We could take our floats. Let's get going. They changed to trunks. Then, since they would not have anyone on the surface to keep track of time or depth, strapped on wristwatches, compasses, and wrist depth gauges. Floats and weight belts were put on. Then the boys added small plastic slates and pencils for writing underwater. Knives, masks, snorkels. Their favorite guns, fins, and lungs completed their equipment. Shall we walk up the beach or swim? Swim, Rick said promptly. This stuff is too heavy to carry comfortably. They launched floats and placed aqualung mouthpieces on top of their masks, then swam parallel to the beach. By using snorkels, they avoided the effort of lifting their faces out of the water to breathe and conserved air in the tanks. With effective but effortless leg strokes, they moved along rapidly. As they approached the ship rib that Scotty had found, they turned and swam straight out toward the reef, crossed it, then came to a halt. Let's tie our floats up to something, Rick suggested. Scotty nodded. Aqualung mouthpieces replaced the snorkels, and each boy tested his own flow of air, checked to be sure his mask was connected to a lung by a safety line, charged his gun, and set his watch. The watches, designed especially for underwater swimming, had an outer dial that could be set to show elapsed diving time. Rick hooted and pointed down. Scotty nodded, and they submerged. Because of their belt weights, the weight of the air in their tanks, they were just heavy enough to sink slowly. After the dive, when the air in the tanks was nearly exhausted, they would weigh about five pounds less and have a slight positive buoyancy that would help them to rise. They found coral outcroppings and tied their float lines, being careful not to cut their hands. Rick suddenly wished they had brought canvas gloves. Scotty still wore a single rubber one. Then, with a few strong kicks to overcome their inertia, they started down the face of the reef. It fell off sharply for about 40 feet, then more gradually until sand bottom was reached at about 90 feet. Rick felt the sensation of thrusting his face into a wedge as the pressure increased. He swallowed a couple of times and felt his ears equalize, but his mask was beginning to hurt. He exhaled through his nose and equalized the pressure inside the mask. There were plenty of fish around now, a grouper saw them coming and ducked into his hole in the coral. A fairly large moray eel, only his head visible, watched their progress. Tiny demozels fluttered around them, and a pair of red squirrelfish watched them from the shelter of a purple coral fan. The coral growth was spectacular, with fantastic shapes and colors. Then, as they went deeper, the colors gradually faded to a uniform green. Rick knew from underwater flash photographs that the appearance was deceptive. The colors remained, but the quality of the light had changed. Scotty hooted four times, the signal for danger. Rick looked and saw a barracuda hovering nearby. He gulped. The fish was easily five feet long. Both boys lifted their spear guns just in case he attacked. 
but the motion alarmed him and he was gone with one powerful flick of his tail. Rick consulted his wrist depth gauge, holding it close to his faceplate. They were at the bottom at 90 feet, and clean sand dropped away at an angle of about 30 degrees. The boys planed downward a few feet above the sand until Rick's gauge read 120 feet. That was the limit of their dive. Going deeper would mean stopping for decompression on the way up. He recalled that the waves came into the beach from a slightly northerly direction and motioned to Scotty that they should turn north. Scotty moved out to the limit of visibility, and they swam on a compass heading of north, watching for any sign of a wreck. Now and then a coral shelf extended out from the reef, but they saw nothing that could have been a wreck. Once they swam over a patch of marine growth, perhaps 20 feet long and 10 feet wide, and a huge eagle ray lifted from it and glided off like a weird futuristic airplane. It was quiet except for the regular chuckle of their exhausts, and the light was subdued. It was a world without shadows. Still, Rick thought, there was plenty of light for photography. Next time he would bring his camera. The watch showed him that over half their allotted time was gone, and he hooted once to Scotty, then reversed course, heading back toward their floats. They approached the patch where they had seen the ray, and Rick paused suddenly. There was an odd shape on the sand near the patch. He flippered over to it and examined it. Scotty joined him. It looked like an oversized mushroom protruding from the sand at an angle. Rick unsheathed his knife and poked at it. The sharp tip penetrated for a fraction of an inch, then stopped. It was either rock or metal. Judging from the shape, it was unlikely that it was rock. He put the knife under it and pried, and the thing moved in the sand. Both boys went to work on it, scooping sand from around it. In a moment, they had it clear. It was something like a dumbbell, covered with marine growth where it had been above the sand, but fairly smooth under it. Rick took his belt slate and scribbled, Metal. Scotty nodded, and both of them turned to look at the patch of marine life. A distant throb, as though of a boat, caught their attention. They looked up, but the surface was invisible. It was Tony and Zircon, Rick decided. They probably had returned to the cottage and found the diving equipment missing. They could spot the location where the boys were diving easily enough, first by the floats, then by the bubbles of their exhausts. Scotty hooted suddenly four times. Rick turned quickly in time to see a six-foot shark speed past. The tips of the pectoral fins and the second dorsal were darker than the rest of the fish, and Rick identified it as a black-tipped shark. Obviously, the shark was on business of its own and not particularly interested in them. Still, it was curious. The shark was rushing almost straight up. Scotty gripped his arm and pointed. More sharks. Another black tip. And a ten-foot leopard shark? All rushing upward. The boys watched tensely, then out of the dimness above, something sped down at them, followed by the sharks. It landed in the sand just beyond the marine growth. Rick saw a black tip go for it. Then the black tip was struck from the side by the big leopard. In spite of his sudden apprehension, Rick couldn't help wishing for his camera. The sharks rushed again, and the falling object was lifted from the sand by the disturbed water. 
This time Rick recognized it. A chicken! It was tied to a length of string from which dangled a lead sinker. The bird was dead, but apparently freshly so. He knew that it was the chicken blood that had brought the sharks, and a giant barracuda. The great fish, a full six feet in length, slashed past the sharks and tore a chunk out of the bird. The leopard shark made a fast pass at the barracuda, then turned and snapped at a black tip. Rick gulped. A hole appeared in the black side, as smooth as though scooped out of ice cream. Then the other sharks hit the wounded black tip. There were many sharks now, worrying the chicken and the wounded black tip like fierce dogs over scraps of meat. And Rick thought, we had better get out of here. He hooted twice at Scotty, the signal to ascend. Scotty motioned to him to retreat. Rick picked up the dumbbell-shaped object. It was heavy, but not too heavy to handle. He started a slow retreat along the sand. The sharks were paying no attention to the boys, but Rick wasn't at all sure they wouldn't once the supply of chicken and wounded shark were exhausted. His mind raced. Where had that chicken come from? Whoever had tossed it in the water would have known that the blood would bring sharks. It wasn't a casual toss. Not when the chicken had been weighted down with a fishing sinker big enough to carry it to the bottom. Tony and Zircon would never do something as stupid as that. Besides, they didn't have any chickens. Rick and Scotty backed far enough away so that the sharks could no longer be seen, then headed toward the reef. They started for the surface. Scotty was slightly in the lead, and Rick kept glancing back in case one of the big fish decided to follow. But they reached the surface without incident and broke water about 200 feet from their floats. There was no boat in sight. Replacing aqualung tubes with snorkels, they swam to the surface, face down to lurk for sharks. When they reached the floats, Scotty kept watch from the surface while Rick dove to untie the lines. As they climbed on the floats and lifted masks, Scotty and Rick pointed and yelled, Hey! simultaneously. But they had seen different things. Rick had seen the water witch pass through the reef and head for them. Scotty had seen another boat, a big cabin cruiser, tied up at the pier in front of the house occupied by the fancy frogmen. Rick turned and looked at the cruiser, then at the house. He was in time to see the front door close. There would have been plenty of time for somebody to drop the chicken from the cruiser, then cross the reef and tie up at the dock. I'll bet that's where the chicken came from, Rick said harshly. That's a bet I won't take, Scotty returned. But you can bet we'll find out. Chapter 9 Wreck of the Maiden Hand Tony Briati examined the metallic object they had brought from the bottom, then took his knife and scraped at it. Under the covering of marine growth, red rust appeared. He looked at Hobart Zircon. Recognize this, Hobart? There's only one thing I can think of that fits that shape, Tony. Bar shot. My conclusion exactly. Tony weighed the thing in his hand. He grinned at the boys. Adventure prone and lucky. Describe the place where you found it. Rick did so, concluding. The patch didn't look anything like a ship, though, if that's what you're thinking. Yeah. After two centuries, the ship would no longer look like a ship. But this is unquestionably a bar shot for an ancient cannon. 
It was used to cut down ship rigging, knock down masts, and create other damage of that sort. It's likely that the pirates or the maiden hand would have carried Bashat. I think you have found the ship, Zircon told them. And the question about earthquakes was a good one. There was a heavy quake in this region about a year ago. I had occasion to recall it a half an hour ago when we found a slight fault at the southern tip of the island that had uncovered an Indian midden. And a fine one, Tony added. You boys can dive for treasure if you want. I've got some work of my own to do. Incidentally, Scotty reminded Rick, in the confusion below, we forgot to send up a buoy. Hope we can find the place again. It's not a problem. Of course we can. What confusion? Zircon asked. Rick told him. A freshly killed chicken was dropped near us, and it must have been bleeding when it hit the water, because we suddenly had a shark convention around us. He pointed to the boat tied to the pier, now far behind them because the water which had been moving. And we think that was the boat that dropped it. It was weighted, Scotty added. The scientists looked at each other. Tony grunted. That makes no sense, Hobot. Why would anybody weight a freshly killed chicken and throw it over the side? No reason at all, the big scientist said, unless he wanted to create mischief below. But just the act of dropping a chicken wouldn't ensure harm to divers below, Tony objected. That's why I said mischief. Inexperienced divers might panic under such circumstances and attract the sharks to themselves. Rick hazarded a guess. What if they just wanted to keep people from diving into that area? That might be one way of doing it, Zircon said thoughtfully. Are you suggesting there are others after the Maidenhead treasure? Scotty spoke up. How could anybody else find out about the treasure? It's possible there are other references besides the logbook we found, Tony replied. But it would be a little far-fetched to speculate that other treasure hunters had found the location and were diving right at the same time. This might be related to what happened on St. Thomas, Rick ventured. Zircon shook his massive head. It's not very likely. Think about this. He ticked off the points on his fingers. Who knew we were coming to Clipper Key? Ernst, Steve, and his Navy friend. We didn't mention it to the people from whom we bought supplies, nor did we discuss it in the presence of others. We weren't followed here. No, Rick, I think we can't blame this incident on the ones at St. Thomas. Then it was just a dangerous practical joke, Tony concluded, unless there was some legitimate reason for throwing the chicken over that we don't know about. Zircon steered the water witch through the reef entrance, and the spin drifters tied up at the dock. Rick and Scotty inspected the compressor and then measured the amount of air in the tanks. They hooked the tanks up, refilled the gas tank of the compressor engine, and left the tanks to fill while they went off to the cottage. Rick and Zircon prepared dinner while Tony and Scotty refilled the gasoline lanterns that provided light and generally straightened up the cottage. Rick called. Tony, tell us more about this Indian stuff you found, Scotty added. And what's a midden, anyway? Tony leaned on his broom. A midden is a polite name for a refuse heap, a garbage pile. Before the days of rubbish collection, people used to dump their trash in the yard. 
the Indians did, and thereby provided archaeologists with an important source of information. Apparently, a Native American tribe lived on this island, close to the southern tip. It's likely they simply dumped their rubbish into the water. Well, the earthquake Hobart spoke of shifted the old coral formations at the southern tip slightly and lifted a few square yards out of the water. He went to the front porch and brought back a curved piece of material encrusted with coral. This used to be a pottery bowl, probably Taino in origin. I'll probably find a lot more like it. It didn't look like much of a find to Rick, but he knew that Tony's trained eyes could see many things that he couldn't. You'll dive with us, though, won't you? he asked. Of course, but you and Scotty are the real enthusiasts, and the dive that I do will just use up air that you probably should be using. I'll go down with you in the morning because I want to look at the wreck. But after that, I think Hobart and I can amuse ourselves on the midden while you and Scotty hunt treasure. Of course, we'll be ready to help if you need us. A few minutes before six, Rick turned on his portable shortwave radio to the channel that Steve had given him. But the air was silent. He waited for ten minutes, then snapped it off again. Apparently, Steve had no message for them. Dinner consisted of fresh snapper and barracuda steaks, served with coconut sauce, for which Zircon had learned the recipe during his tours in the Pacific. It was delicious, and Rick wondered about the fussiness of people who refuse to eat barracudas simply because the fish is a noted predator. However, he knew that people are served barracuda every day under less offensive names. After dinner, they sat over coffee on the porch and watched the sun sink beyond the reef. It was like a Pacific sunset, colorful and somehow soothing. The boys walked to the pier, checked their tanks, and found them fully charged. Then, at Scotty's suggestion, they locked the tanks and compressor in the cabin of the water witch. Fresh water rinses for the remainder of the equipment followed, and they carried the equipment into the house. Zircon was already engrossed in a book while Tony was engaged in scraping the pottery shard he had found. The boys watched him for a few minutes, then Scotty suggested, How about a walk? Okay. There was an idea stirring in the back of Rick's mind. As they walked down to the beach, he said, We ought to take a look at the folks who own that boat. And Scotty said in the same breath, And let's visit the fancy frogmen. They grinned at each other, amused at how much alike their thought processes were. We better approach them from the back, Scotty suggested. Rick agreed. Suppose we cross to the eastern shore, then walk up until we're inside of the house. It's close to the northern tip anyway. It was almost fully dark now, and no lights appeared in the houses south of them. As they watched, lights showed up far up the beach where the fancy frogmen lived. But there were no other lights anywhere on the island. Just two houses occupied, I guess, Rick said. We'll probably have more neighbors during the weekend, Scotty answered. The people in the house south of us must have left, but they may come back. Come on. They made their way through the palm grove, watching fruit bats whirl against the darkening sky. There was a slight breeze, just enough to make the palms whisper. It reminded Rick of Hawaii. The eastern shore was rough. The reef was much closer here, with long swells that had come all the way across the Atlantic. They sounded like subdued thunder as they broke. It was dark now, and only the white of the breaking water could be seen. 
They walked up the eastern shore until the lights of the frogmen's house were directly opposite, then turned toward it, moving with caution. Take it easy, Rick whispered. They may be outside. As they drew closer, they could see that the lights were in the front rooms of the house. The back was dark, except for light that came through the open inner doors. Wait, Scotty whispered. I'll see if they're out front. Rick sat down to wait as Scotty vanished. Few could equal his pal when it came to moving silently and invisibly. In a surprisingly short time, Scotty reappeared. Nope, no one out front, he reported. They're all in the living room. Rick rose, and together they walked swiftly and silently to the rear of the house. The door of the room in which the diving gear was stowed opened into the living room. Perhaps they could see in there. A car game was in progress by the light of a kerosene lamp. Rick studied the face of a heavy-set, dark-haired man who sat facing him. The man wore a t-shirt that displayed the heavy muscles of arms and chest. His face was square-jawed and powerful, the eyes set deep under bushy brows. His hair was short and curly and sprinkled with gray. He looked like one used to command. Rick's quick imagination pictured him on the quarter-deck of a slaver, ruling his cutthroat crew with iron fists. The others were not visible. Through the door, the boys moved silently to the side of the house and drew back so they could look through the living room window. The second man was visible now. He was young, perhaps in his twenties, and he had an unruly shock of blonde hair. Once he might have been good-looking, but a scar crossed a nose that had been badly broken. The third man sat with his back to them. Rick touched Scotty's sleeve, and they went around the house via the back. The view was blocked by an open door. Scotty put his lips close to Rick's ear. The front! Rick led the way, moving carefully because the light spilled out of the front windows and the open front door. They reached a vantage point and looked in. The third man was now clearly visible. The boys reached for each other at the same moment. The third man was Steve Shadow. The morning found the water witch anchored on the reef close to the place where the boys had found the bar shot. There was no sign of activity at the fancy frogman's house, and the boat was tied up as it had been the previous evening. Apparently, they were late sleepers. The spin drifters tossed coins to see who would make the first dive, and the lot fell to Rick and Tony. They donned their equipment, then Rick picked up a spear gun, while Tony selected a wrecking bar from his equipment. It took ten minutes of their precious fifteen to find the wreck again. This time, Rick took the precaution of tying a float to a projection and unwinding the line while the float rose to the surface. Tony started at one end of the mass of marine growth and inserted his wrecking bar. Rick joined him in heaving, and a cloud of dust and fish eggs rose to envelop them. It took a moment or two for the water to clear enough so they could see. Then Tony hooted his triumph. The pull had exposed rotted timbers. This had to be a ship. But was it the maiden hand? Rick wondered if they would ever be sure. Yet he felt it was, even though he realized that the feeling grew as much out of optimism and hope as anything else. Still, it was unlikely that another ship would be wrecked at the same depth. Tony wrote on his slate, More under sand than can see likely.
Rick nodded. The shifting sands had undoubtedly covered, exposed, and recovered the wreck dozens of times in the years it had lain here. He looked at his watch, then reluctantly gave Tony the signal to surface. Their time was up. On the water witch, Tony said, It's a ship, all right, and since it's on the western reef at twenty fathoms, I'd say it's very likely the one we want. Wonder how Captain Campion pegged the depth so accurately, Scotty inquired. Zircon had a possible answer. Let's assume the pirates knew he was carrying the golden statue. It would have been logical for them to sound, just to see if there was any possibility of recovering the treasure from the wreck. Since they kept Campion for ransom, he would have heard the depth mentioned. It seemed reasonable, and it was as good an answer as any, since there was no way of actually knowing if it was right or wrong. How do we find the statue? Rick asked. Tony handed him the wrecking bar with a grin. Take the wreck apart a piece at a time. If you still haven't found it, then start digging. The boy sighed. Rick recalled reading somewhere that treasure hunting was synonymous with ditch digging. Now he knew what the author meant. Scotty and Zircon prepared to dive, shifting the regulators to fresh tanks while they checked the equipment. While they checked the equipment, Rick rummaged through the boat's locker and found a length of heavy line. An empty water jug with a screw cap was attached to it, and he handed the end of the line to Scotty to take down with him. The fishing float and line isn't heavy enough. We'll add this just in case. Scotty took it and went over the side. He carried his spear gun while Zircon took the wrecking bar. Rick watched as they vanished from sight, leaving only the continuing track of bubbles. Ashore, a man came out of the fancy frogman's house and walked down the beach. He shaded his eyes and stared at the water witch. Rick pointed him out to Tony. This business stumps me, the archaeologist admitted. Are you certain about the identity of the man who was trailing Ames? We're dead sure. Then is there any possible way he could have known about our presence on the island? Not unless he recognized the water witch. That's got to be it. The question is, what do we do about it? Nothing, I guess. We'll have to be on guard. Twin sets of bubbles rose, some distance from the boat, showing that both lungs were working well twenty fathoms down. Since the bubbles did not ascend vertically, they did not show the location of the two on the bottom. Rick studied them, working on an idea. The chicken had been dropped pretty close to them, but since their floats were tied to the reef and their bubbles were carried off a vertical path by the light currents, Neither could have been used to pinpoint their whereabouts. Unless whoever dropped the chicken had an excellent knowledge of the currents in this particular place. He carried the thought further. The shadow had gotten upset because he and Scotty had gone swimming in an area where something was hidden. At least that was a reasonable assumption, based on the events at St. Thomas. The fancy diving gear in the house, the attempt to warn them off, and the presence of Steve's erstwhile shadow on Clipper Key could then be added up. Right here in this particular area, another mysterious something was hidden, something that the fancy frogmen dived off into sea, use, or collect, or whatever they did with it. That would account for their familiarity with the currents. He started to tell Tony, then reconsidered. It was a pretty good hypothesis, he thought 
but not supported by ironclad evidence. If he told the scientists, they might forbid any more diving in the area, and he was determined to get that treasure, more for his sister Barbie than for himself. If he failed to get it, there would be no living with Barbie, since she would always maintain that she could have found it if they had only allowed her to go on their old expedition. Sir Con and Scotty broke the water and Rick helped them aboard. It's a ship, and a sailing ship at that, Zircon boomed. We identified what was almost certainly a compass binnacle, probably brass, but there wasn't enough time to get it free and bring it up. Scotty found what is probably the muzzle of a cannon buried in the sand. There's so much growth over everything, it's hard to tell what's what, Scotty added, but it certainly looked like a cannon muzzle. From what we saw, I suspect that the portion above the sand is the stern, probably the stern superstructure. If the timbers haven't completely rotted away, ripping off the top should expose the stern cabins. That seems reasonable, Tony agreed. At any rate, it's a good basis for operation. Rick, if you look in my kit, you will find a larger wrecking bar you can borrow. You'll both need tools if you're going to take the ship apart. Anyway, that's enough diving for the morning, Zircon said. Let's up anchor and go. While the others got the boat underway, Rick started the compressor in the cockpit and connected up the tanks they had used. He almost wished he and Scotty had been extravagant and had ordered triple tank blocks to give them maximum time underwater. Still, the singles were convenient, and diving was a sport it wasn't wise to overdo. By the time they were through with lunch and had rested a while, the tanks would be fully charged again. As they tied up, Zircon said, Tony and I will work at his midden this afternoon. You two can take the boat. We won't need it. I'll walk over and take a look every once in a while and see if our friends from the cottage are near you. If they are, we'll come running. The boys helped Tony prepare a simple lunch of soup and sandwiches. Then all hands retired to the front porch to eat. Up the beach, there were signs of activity around the frogman's boat. As they ate and washed, the boat moved away from the pier and approached the reef, where it anchored. Rick went to get binoculars and focused them on the scene. Two frogmen, complete with suits, went over the side, right where their buoys floated. Hey! They're diving at our wreck! he exclaimed. Zircon took the glasses and watched, then handed them to Tony. The archaeologist muttered. Surely they can't be interested in the treasure. It would simply be too much of a coincidence for them to even know it exists. Maybe they're just looking to see what interested us, Scotty offered, and his explanation seemed the most plausible. The group watched until the frogmen surfaced and the boat went back to the pier. I guess Scotty was right, Zircon agreed. From what we've seen, I say they simply followed our buoy lines down to see what we were doing. If that's the extent of their interest, I don't see how we could object, Tony said. Or even if they tried for the treasure, we'd have no grounds for objecting. The ship is anyone's property after all these years, Rick said flatly. We won't do any objecting, but we'll do plenty of watching. We're going to get that treasure if it's there, whether the fancy frogmen like it or not. <laughs>